stars of the culture wars. I'm your host Alexandra Marshall and today we are joined by Gideon Rosner. So Gideon you are director of policy at the Institute of Public Affairs and the new host of the joint project between the spectator and the IPA called counterculture. You know I nearly called you director of liberty. Uh, that's oh, your reputation. I like the title better. I like that title better. You to have that title made, made permanent director of liberty. Director of Liberty, Patriotism, Freedom, Democracy and the Australian Way of Life. I like that. That sounds like a, a ministerial title. You know how ministers have these absurdly long titles these days? That's what I want on my business card. But, uh, yeah, no, so I'm, my day job is Director of Policy at the Institute of Public Affairs, but very excitingly I just uh, launched a web show and podcast, which is, as you said, a joint production of The Spectator Australia and the Institute of Public Affairs and the first show on Spectator Australia TV it's called Counterculture, so if you want to watch, uh, please do Google or look up on YouTube, Spectator Australia TV, and hit the like button and hit the subscribe button because we have to beat the Silicon Valley algorithms. All right, now that's enough promoing of yourself. Uh, so how you're famous for being a libertarian. That is one of the main things that you're brought on to, things like Sky News to discuss. How does one end up being a libertarian and fighting for liberty in the culture that we have today, particularly as you hail from Danistan, i.e. the southern state of China? Well, I was a... Uh, look, I, I've basically been a political animal since I was about 14. I mean, I, I uh, strolled out of the womb with a copy of The Spectator Australia under my arm and a pile of Liberal Party how to vote cards in my hands. So I... First became politically aware as a teenager. I joined the Liberal Party on my 16th birthday, which is the youngest you could join because clearly I was the coolest kid on the playground. But then when I got to university, I really refined my political outlook and my political philosophy because I joined the Melbourne Uni Liberal Club. And, you know, we, every week we had meetings and debates and so on. And typically they went down to, you know, libertarian versus conservative debates. We were back in those days a broadly libertarian club in terms of outlook. Uh, but I guess that's just my uh, personal philosophy as well as my political one. I don't like rules. I don't like being told what to do. I don't like. I don't think the government has uh, a role in the boardroom or the bedroom or anything in between. And I guess it comes from my other uh, philosophical and personal philosophy, which is uh, extreme hedonism, uh, to put for lack of a better word. I don't like. Uh, and, and, you know, while I talk a lot about freedom of speech and tax and economics and things like that, my uh, one of my key, key passions uh, is nanny state issues, you know, alcohol taxation, smokers' rights, vaping is a big one. I've had a lot to say about Greg's Hunt, Greg Hunt's disgraceful war on vaping, uh, fast food taxes. I mean, uh, I've been alarmed by the public health um, uh, machine ever since... Kevin Rudd basically kicked it off in this country circa 2008. And sadly, with corona, uh, this has been like my own personal dystopian novel, basically a public health dictatorship. Well, so basically you sound like you're a radical for the conservative movement. You're not quite a conservative in every sense. You are sitting as well, a libertarian slightly outside that conservative bubble, unless you think that conservatives are by definition libertarians, which is more what I think if they come in the terms of English liberty and that kind of conservatism. Yeah. Well, look, I don't, I don't like labels so much. You know, broadly, I describe myself as, you know, a right-winger, uh, first and foremost. Um, I, I think we, and this is not so much anymore, but I remember, if, you know, in the years back, we had big internal wars, particularly in, in within the Liberal Party and the young liberals when I was involved, which was, you know, ah, the conservatives, we've got to get those libertarians. Ah, libertarians, we're going to get those knuckle-dragging conservatives. Look, I think the best people in politics borrow from all religions within the broad centre-right. 
uh, religions within, within all philosophical streams within the, the centre right. And um, uh, and look, I you know I have a conservative streak, particularly as I get older. And depending on what side of bed I woke up on, I'm not much of a, a social conservative. I, I don't know. I don't lie awake in you know. I'm basically ambivalent on social issues, if I'm being honest. But I am culturally and institutionally conservative. I don't think we should mess around with you know things like the justice system, for example, or a parliamentary democracy, things that have lasted hundreds of years and served us very well. And I don't like this cultural nihilism that's being inflicted on us by the left. And in terms of I don't think there should be government enforcement of, of family values and the nuclear family necessarily, but I do think there are timeless wisdoms in the family, in community institutions, in, in religion especially, um, that I have a lot of respect for. And I think one of the misnomers about libertarians that we're all hedonists, you know, like me, I think a lot of us believe, no, 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 there is a rule for social, a, a place for social norms, there is a place for um, timeless wisdoms, there is a place for institutions, there is a place for community. I, it's just I, it will, maintaining any of those things by government uh, will always, always backfire. Well, let's get to that point. You identify as a libertarian, but not as an anarchist in the true sense of anarchy. So I'm guessing that you fall somewhere in the era of you don't like it when the government opposes too many laws. But instead of disobeying those laws, you, you choose to try and change laws which you think are invasive or generally unlawful. Would that be an accurate way of describing your form of libertarianism? I guess so. I mean, I've got. I mean, we discussed this uh, in a pilot for counterculture, Ellie, when we talked about uh, civil disobedience. I think there's a place for civil disobedience, and you have a great article in the Spectator Australia online as I as we talked about talking about the different kinds of civil disobedience from a conservative angle. I might add. Uh, so yeah, I'll jaywalk. I'll uh, you know go outside without a mask on. I think it's stupid that the government ever you know required us to wear a mask in the open air. Um, but I think fundamentally, though, the place for legal change is within existing democratic institutions that go back um, hundreds of years. The problem is these institutions are being undermined and superseded by unelected bureaucrats increasingly. So I think that the real, you know, the, the answer is a bit more complicated than, oh, well, we just need to agitate to change the law. You know, we, we vote against carbon climate action, for example, time and time and time again, but we keep getting it because the brain's trust in uh, federal and state government departments, bureaucracies, academics, ministers' offices, uh, always second-guesses popular opinion. So uh, I think broadly uh, the best place for legal change is within democratic structures, but that's not a, a perfect uh, not a perfect safety valve by any stretch these days. Not a perfect system. The problem with interviewing you, Gideon, is you and I think quite similarly. So you steal <laughs> all of my talking points from the next two pages of my questions as you answer one question. But what I'm going to do now is be really cruel to you and test you about it. Uh, so sure. do you think, in retaliation, of course, do you think that there is a limit to the laws that a government like Australia's in the Westminster fashion? Is there a limit to the laws they can legally enforce upon citizens? Or are we acting and relying essentially on good faith? Because as we've worked out, we don't have as many constitutional protections as we thought. And even the ones that we do have, can be overrided without so much as a question put to the population. So I think my question is, are we living off good faith? We, we have been. Uh, this is the, the, the key fragility in, I guess, Westminster democracy, that a lot of it relies upon conventions, uh, particularly respect for fundamental legal rights. And increasingly we are seeing uh, those legal rights being ridden roughshod over. Um, co the coronavirus, if nothing else, showed us there is no limit legislatively in a legislative sense, to what um, our politicians can do to us. Did you ever think, for example, that the government would uh, legally confine us to our homes 23 hours a day? Did you ever think that the government would force us to go around wearing nappies on our heads? Did you ever think the government could just chuck thousands of people out of work and nobody would bat an eyelid? Uh, now, you know, the complication is a lot of these most, in fact, most all of these laws are being made under emergency powers uh, that aren't uh, subject to normal democratic processes. You know, Brett Sutton for a time was basically the dictator of Victoria who was our, you know, brain's trust of a chief health, chief health officer. But I guess that is the point that the government can um, 
all, all you know all, what the governments have done in terms of corona restrictions were were wrong and, and undemocratic but they were legal um but the other point to make obviously is that we don't have a first amendment in this country we don't have uh legit you know constitutionally guaranteed rights we are relying on our elected leaders to have some sort of respect for liberties again i make the point that go back hundreds of years and are things that are should be cherished by all of us, uh, they're not really that fashionable anymore among the governing elite. And as, as we're seeing, they end up being pretty dispensable. Well, my concern has always been that our political systems, having studied the histories, particularly revolutions in Europe, our systems are quite fragile. We're lucky in Australia that we had to start from scratch. So for a long time, they're simply, we were too busy creating a country to worry about political upheaval. It was, it was a tricky thing to do. But even in America, where they do have constitutional protections for their rights, we are seeing their rights overruled by Biden's uh, mandates that he's putting in without going through yeah. normal process. So my argument really is all of our systems appear to be on the good grace of politicians and it is a social contract that's hard to pin down between the people and their governments. I'm a bit worried that this is how governments fall into collectivism and socialism. It's step by step. And it's when you start to ignore custom, which is a big part of English law, yeah. and allow mandates to take over. Are you worried that Australia is not immune to falling into collectivism by this uh, inching away at our rights? No, of course not. I think in a lot of ways we are veering into collectivism. I mean, we, we, again, I make the point we have a situation in which hundreds of thousands of people have been chucked out of work and, you know, had their economic self-reliance uh, sat. Small businesses in particular have been shut and will never reopen. And in uh, to replace that, we've got the JobKeeper scheme and, and which, which there are perennial calls to extend and indeed there is being extended in terms of uh, handouts to aviation groups and things like that. The bottom line is we are having people who used to be independent economic uh, actors in a free market who are now being subsumed into government subsistence. So we're already on the way there. Um, the, the, the other broad point to mention, though, is that the social contract you mentioned is basically being torn up, and it's being torn up by not just governments, but the governing elite, the, the uh, po political and cultural elite, the governing class, call them what you will, who increasingly are not just... Uh, indifferent to our rights, but hostile to them. You do see a lot of people these days who should know better. Who should know better? Who are saying, "Well, look, you know, look at the Chinese. They're they're making so many strides. They have super fast trains, and their economy is growing faster than ours." You know, this democracy can be a bit clunky. It can be get in the way of you know important social goals like again climate action and and smart cities and uh, and all the rest. So. I think this is a very, very precarious time because once the people who govern over us start giving up on the wisdom of the crowd and the wisdom of um, the democratic will of the Australian Australian people, uh, then we're in a very, in very, very dangerous territory. And how we fight back for our rights is is an open question, but it ain't going to be pretty. Well, I've no, I don't know if you noticed or saw the report, but there's talk again to lower the voting age in the US down to I think it's 16, which is the usual socialist tactic because the young tend to vote left and so that's what Democrats are trying to do. They're trying to increase their voter base, which is another erasure of our democratic protections. Now, in Australia, one of the biggest protections that we have against the creep toward a collectivist system like communism is the middle class and the working class of Australia who either own their own businesses or employ people. Mm. And that holds together the majority fabric of our economic system. So, uh, I think it's something like 94% of all businesses are a small business. Uh, with COVID, those are the hardest hit. And I don't know if you saw, but I wrote an article in The Spectator last week regarding how difficult it is to remove JobKeeper and, and JobSeeker, the, the two systems that we've got there to support those who are out of work because of government mandates. And that if they do the rollback incorrectly, they risk closing those businesses, which they desperately need to both refund uh, and we collect the tax back to pay off the debt, but also to make sure that the population doesn't fall into uh, the welfare state, which is what we are in yeah. danger of doing. Uh, so I, I agree with most conservatives to say, well, we can't stay on welfare forever. But my point in the article was that we can't have restrictions and no support because yeah. it's not like a it's not like a normal handout where we're just giving away free money. The government, mm. in, in my view. When they took control of the market, they became financially responsible for that market. It's a rare Absolutely. Incident. And I, I totally agree. And I've never opposed JobKeeper 
outright. I've always said that if the government forces you by edict to shut your business, the government owes you compensation for income lost. And JobKeeper doesn't even is a drop in the bucket compared to what a lot of people uh, have um, uh, you know have lost through this whole thing. Uh, my argument, though, is that these businesses obviously shouldn't have been shut in the first place. And the government now that is facing this huge bill from this uh, JobKeeper. Uh, you know, extravaganza has only itself to blame because don't forget it was Scott Morrison that sat eight dimwits down around the national cabinet table and basically egged them on into shutting down their economies. He didn't oppose in any meaningful way uh, Dan Andrews' second lockdown, which was an economic war crime against the Victorian people and the Victorian economy. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think it's tragic and disheartening that we're falling into a trillion-dollar debt, uh, but... I guess that debt was to an extent necessary, but it was necessitated by uh, idiotic government policy. Well, let me put this to you as a, as, as a thing, because I've had businesses in Melbourne and I know so many people who have lost everything because of these lockdowns, because the lockdowns mm. are being done over the biggest trading days of the year, which means that this is something that politicians don't understand. It's not like a government paycheck. You don't just throw out money every week and that sustains you. Uh, retail, hospitality and tourism have big days that sustain them for months worth of trade, yep. particularly Boxing Day. And so when Daniel Andrews calls a snap election and takes out Valentine's Day, he takes out a whole run of florists, yeah. their producers, the, the surrounding industries forever. So and my Chinese worry New Year, that, that was a huge one too. Exactly. And when they took out Boxing Day, they basically destroyed retail forever. And one yep. thing the government never talks about is the fact that tourism and hospitality and retail have there's 70% of their customers aren't here, they're not in the country. And mm. so no amount of assistance or uh, renewing of uh, legislation will help those businesses, those jobs are gone. Do you worry that the government doesn't fully grasp how the industries that they've, they've taken on actually function and therefore are unable to produce solutions that will save them? Of course. Uh, I, I, it's not like I worry about it. It's, it's just, it, it's, it's, self-evident the government has no idea they think you could turn on open and close small business uh you know do the, like, like some sort of hokey pokey dance you know you're in you're out uh that's not how businesses work you you know that i know that and i've frankly never spent a day running a small business in my life um but but the governments either don't know that or don't care uh but this is this is the issue and this goes to another bugbear of mine and i'm getting slightly off topic but this idea of government innovation grants, investment partnerships, and so on, it is the most stupid and, and oxymoronic thing that I've ever heard of, that the government can decide, you know, what industries should, should innovate and how and under what terms and bankroll them. The government is the least innovative institution that we have. Um, and I, often I make the point, nobody gave Bill Gates a startup grant. Nobody gave Steve Jobs, you know, an incubation hub or a launch pad or whatever the hell it is, else it is Malcolm Turnbull used to uh, bang on about. You know, nobody gave Henry Ford some sort of R&D tax concession. Um, the, the, not, not that I have, you know, a huge uh, bugbear against R&D tax concessions. I, I believe in anything that lowers taxes for um, businesses. But broadly, um, this idea that the government can partner with our economy and you know usher them through and everything else it's just a bunch of complete hogwash it is basically uh, this Keynesian macroeconomic pump money into something and hope something happens uh, which is an easy answer to avoid the very, really hard job of real microeconomic reform that will make it easier for businesses to operate and more importantly start up things like cutting company tax things like doing something about industrial relations and the Fair Work Act, um, uh, things like red tape, which costs Australia $176 billion each and, each, uh, and every year. Uh, you, know, as, as, you know how but, I warned you about stealing my notes from the next page? That's yeah. what you've been done. So you're speaking my language here, basically. The government has been inching towards already wanting to raise taxes to recover some of the money, and the first tax they want to raise oh, yeah, is the which, of course, is the tax that most heavily impacts the industries that are most affected by COVID. You raise GST, hospitality and retail freak out because not only do they have to invest money to change all the taxes through their systems, but they are the ones whose products then become uncompetitive on a global stage. So it's the worst possible idea. But that's what happens when you have a treasurer in charge of the country instead of someone who's come from a, a more broad business sense and base who can stop there and go, hang on. If you want to recover your money, you have to allow businesses to grow so that you can tax a, a larger pool but a smaller amount. Otherwise, there's going to be no employers, there's going to be no business, and the government's going to be stuck with the entire wage bill of the nation. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up on one thing you said, Nick, and we're getting a little bit off topic, but I hear a lot that, oh, you know, the government should be run more like a business where we need more business people in parliament, et cetera. No, I think we should let business people do what they run best and run uh, and do best in their, and run their businesses. You know, if somebody from a small business background wants to run and have so, has something to offer, that's fantastic. But this idea that the government should be run like a business, I think is a false analogy. You know, what do businesses do? They try to increase their market share. They try to edge out competitors. They try to get more customers. I don't want government to do any of that. The government should be like an owner's corporation or a body corporate in an apartment building you know um they should uh maintain the common property flick you the bylaws hold the agm uh you know regularly and at all other times leave you your family and your property the hell alone i want a minimalist government i didn't want a government that's trying to get me as a customer uh finally something i can actually fight you on I didn't actually say the government should be run like a business. I said no, you didn't. Run. You didn't, but a lot of people do. No, so my argument is that they don't have any experience of how the mechanisms of the country that they're trying to run actually operate. So when you've got people sitting in government who their only experience is from big corporate lobbyists and councils, and let me tell you, the Small Business Council is hated in the small business community because it's run what? by essentially large corporations. There's no yeah. consultation with actual small businesses, so the only advice they're getting is advice that benefits the big boys in town. And if you don't have anybody sitting in government who at least has a remote experience of how these systems work, you end up with bad advice, which is what I believe has been going on by and large. I mean, I've sat down and talked to MPs who think that so long as they pay a fraction of the wage bill and there's at least one or two customers coming through the door, then that business will be fine. Why shouldn't they make a profit? You're going, so they have no knowledge of margins or cyclic no. income, nothing. That was my point about small business. No, and but I, I get what you're saying. I, I think the, the problem is that they don't listen and they don't um, care. And you're right, the circle of advice they receive is very, very narrow. And one thing that we at the IPA, at the Institute of Public Affairs, have talked about at the start of the pandemic last year was the fact that Scott Morrison cobbled together a six-person you know, re recovery commission, not one representative from small business. And as you said, half the time, these small business lobby groups are completely useless anyway. Uh, there aren't many people they're talking like about like That's why everybody should join the IPA, ipa.org.au. Stop advertising. They're like, the, um, they're like the farm lobbyist group where they're a collection of the mega farm groups, but they don't represent all the small farmers. It's the same thing over and over again. Yeah. They're basically lobbying groups. Um, but I have a, a question about this medical mandate. We keep being told that it's all based on science. The reason that we've locked you down and destroyed everything, it's purely medical and scientific. Yes, but do you think the government, particularly your Daniel Andrews down there in Victoria, has invalidated the medical argument by allowing some protests to have exemptions on the same week that others are not allowed to protest because of political association? Doesn't that ruin the concept of a medical mandate for purely health reasons? Yes, of course it does. Anybody can see that. The 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 idea that well, well let's, uh, yeah, you, you talked about Black Lives Matter versus anti-lockdown protests. Black Lives Matter are allowed and others weren't. The other issue that is disgraceful that comes to my mind is Anzac Day. Now Moomba has gone ahead. Uh, other other protests have gone ahead. Uh, not the you know uh, the anti. Uh, mandatory vaccination one that went on a few weeks ago that was crushed with bloody force but those things have gone ahead but anzac day oh no no, no it's not not safe enough for anzac day they're obviously picking and choosing what's important what's not and the fact that they didn't pick anzac day uh just shows what contempt they have for australia for australians for mainstream values and for the institutions that have made this country great of course this is political there's a reason why um big business for example got uh exemptions from all this COVID stuff and small business didn't there's a reason uh why golfing and fishing were banned but other but people were allowed to crowd next to each other in crowded supermarkets and shopping centers and the like this is all about uh you know who who can lobby the hardest and what industries and pastimes the government can fa can favour. And that's why you see in Melbourne a lot more people walking around without masks, even when masks were mandatory. People have lost faith in all this stuff. Well, this brings us back to the, the law and the extent to which a government can impose laws. Hmm. Is it still legal for a government to destroy people's businesses and would it hold up in court if at the same time they're allowing their political mates to do whatever they like in defiance of their medical mandates. Well, in a court, of course, it would hold up. It's the law was passed validly, uh, you know, under a, uh, you know, in the instance, in the for the example of Victoria, under emergency powers that were enabled by an act of parliament that was passed when John Brumby was, pre Brumby was premier in 2008. Uh, I don't see any way, you know, speaking as a, a former lawyer, 
in a past life a court could invalidate it. There's no mechanism to. The people who brought forward the law, the, go the law, the government, are not following their own law for their political friends. Does that not invalidate their emergency standard? Because don't forget, these are not normal laws. These are mandates based upon an emergency measure. And if they are proving by their own actions that there is no emergency, aren't those laws then invalid? Uh, well, look, I, 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 it invalidates them in a moral sense, certainly. We've known that for, you know, over a year. Oh, no, it's just... morally bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, cor correct. So that, it validates them in a moral sense. In a legal sense, I don't know enough about the specific emergency law to make an informed um, comment, but I, I do understand that there were a lot of class actions uh, that were brewing last year that were based on the proportionality of the response under the Act and so on. So, look, there may be avenues. But uh, the other issue run up against Delhi is uh, the problem of the law is an ass and, and justice is not always delivered by the courts because of the expense of actually going to court. Uh, there's a real access to justice issue here. If you have a fish and chip shop in Nunawading or something and uh, you want to sue the Victorian government, well, they'll just bury you in legal fees and you won't have much of a hope. Uh, maybe through a class action you could do something. But this idea that the, the Supreme Court of Victoria will step in to defend some small business, I think there are a lot of hurdles you have to jump through before that's the case. Well, we can consider that homework for you, Gideon, to find out whether or not they are Actually, yeah, you're going to get homework now. Um, it's funny that you should say that, Gideon, because we were just talking online yesterday about the quality of justice, how it has now become a function of how much money you have or if you are a favourite group of the government because for most people, justice is just out of financial reach, and particularly as businesses now have bled all of their private assets. No one can take the government to court about what they have done, so there isn't really any justice. Uh, There's no... But, yeah. hmm. But to move on, I'm going to give you a right of reply. So last week we had Matthew Wong on the show who runs the oh, show. Yes. He's a commentator. You might know him. Great bloke. And, uh, <laughs> he is a great bloke. He put that he disagrees with you about basic political systems. He says that you believe that most systems will tend, like capitalism is the natural order of a political system in humanity. He argues that basically authoritarianism is what we as a species tend towards. I actually think you're both right, but I'll let you go into your your answer first before I put to you mine. I'm not, I'm not sure that I said capitalism is the natural order. I mean, I wish it were. We'd be living in a vastly brighter and, and better world. I guess, uh, you know, people will always, uh, you know, opt for being given a fish rather than being taught how to fish, I guess, as a matter of human nature. But I guess what I was... I, I think this was on my program on the discernible um, when I was talking about, he asked me whether I was pessimistic about the future. And I said that I fundamentally was in a long-term sense. I think the twenties will be a pretty lousy decade. I'll be honest. I think this will be like, you know, the 1970s were stagflation, you know, uh, illiberal trading policies, um, uh, mercantilist economics, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that obviously preceded the 80s and economics and the rest is obviously history. Um, my fundamental point was that you can suppress a free people for a while, but not forever. There are, you know, people people tore down the Berlin Wall once upon a time. People, uh, you know, liberated Auschwitz once upon a time. People rose up against segregation once upon a time. Um, I think that eventually we'll reach a tipping point with all this stuff and people will start saying, oh, how did we get here? How do we have every subject of our lives be subject to government dictate? I think fundamentally people will rise up again and demand their freedom, but it'll take a little while. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if that was what gave rise to the comment that he was smarter than me, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let your viewers be the judge. Well, I think that in this circumstance, we were talking about what the natural order of humanity is of how we choose to live. And well, you, speak, you speak quite... You speak quite um, from a, a Western perspective, and we've had liberty bred into us for thousands of years, especially the whole European continent. The reason they rise up in revolution is because we do have a sense of liberty. It's not the same in every corner of the world. There are some cultures that have lived under some kind of totalitarian rule for their entirety of their civilization, which is thousands of years. It might have changed what sort of totalitarian rule it is, but it's certainly uh, they don't have the same insistence on freedom, which just goes to show that once you lose freedom, you can brainwash a population into forgetting that it's something that needs to be valued. No, and I will I will say that there is merit to that in the sense that, you know, we learned from Iraq and the whole neoconservative 
uh, era in right-wing politics that you can't force democracy and uh, you know a liberal democracy by gunpoint. That doesn't work, and um, we should stop doing it. But in, in terms of the free market, I do think that entrepreneurialism is a natural human sort of instinct. And I'll give you a great example. You know, Vietnam. Vietnam has lived under communism, you know, for years and years and years and years, and it's still technically a communist country, but they have liberalised their economy significantly over recent decades. And when you go to Vietnam, I have never in my life seen a more entrepreneurial, energetic people. I mean, everybody's flogging something by the road and uh, running around on scooters and everything else. It's a very young and energetic population. This is a country without a, a culturally a... Um, a history of, you know, free market economics and capitalism, but entrepreneurialism in Vietnam has just exploded uh, in the absence of crushing government diktats. So um, I think that there is a case to be made for the capitalism in its most pure grassroots sense being a, a, a sort of a natural human instinct. And uh, I think that's a very good thing. Because fundamentally, at the end of the day, the free market has done more to lift people out of poverty than any institution in the history of humanity. Well, this is why capitalism is an economic system, whereas democracy is a political system. And yeah. places like collectivism and communism and socialism, they are actually a mixture of the two, which is why they don't allow anything else inside them at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so I'll give, you, I'll give you my point and see if you agree with my halfway point between the two of you. I think that, as you say, capitalism and markets are the natural interaction between humanity because it mimics the process of evolution where yep. things compete and the best product comes to the surface and that's it and we've always bartered we've always trade because that is the best way to increase capital and to increase your um civilization and their what they acquire now mm. the counter to that is that humans also gravitate towards power structures and yep. the most powerful person tends to also be the most authoritarian steals the most land kills the most people but the people who he governs over are safe, which is why more and more people flock to them. So my point is that uh, although capitalism works the best and is a natural inclination of humans, which is why we start doing it even under other systems, that humans flock towards authoritarian systems and they are the predominant system on planet Earth at the moment and throughout mm. all the And that democracy was a little bit of a fluke and that if we lose it, we may it'll be a long struggle back if we ever get it back at all. Well, you're right in the sense that democracy has never been under greater threat in the West, and I think that is something that we have to watch. The the disdain, again, I make the point that the governing elites have for the wisdom of ordinary people has never been higher, and that's a great existential threat to democracies around the world. But I guess you do make a point. There is the famous Jordan Peterson discussion of uh, that hierarchies are natural, you know, the lobster chat and everything else, which I think has some merit. But also I guess it comes down to the, the Maslow hierarchy of needs. And I guess this explains why we've seen Victorians, uh, at least last year, embrace this idiotic cult of Dan Andrews, because when you tell people that there's this new wicked virus going around and you're, you're going to die, and I'm the only one that'll keep you safe, uh, I, I guess people will take that tough medicine. The good news is now people know more about the virus. They know more about how it's transmitted, how it's spread, what their risk is in terms of their age group and so on. So I think people are now reverting back to making decisions about their own safety as opposed to, you know, trusting, uh, you know, some goofy guy with, uh, you know, bad suits and uh, lousy glasses to tell them uh, they can't visit Nana, otherwise they'll kill her. Well, that's, uh, Victoria is actually a perfect test case. We've got New South Wales and Victoria behaving differently to these mandates because over the course of decades, we've, we've viewed politics differently. In New South Wales, we don't follow blind mandates. We haven't been as as left-wing as Victoria has. And you can see how left-wing politics, which seemed benign, actually changed the way people react in a crisis quite fundamentally. Mm. Yeah. But I I'll, put, I'll put this to you. Do you think that Australia has reached peak freedom probably around the 90s and that we are now on a downward trend away from freedom? I think in the short term, yes. In the long term, no. I, I refuse to believe that it's all curtains from here and then, you know, the Chinese will eventually rock up, uh, you know, when there are only a few people left and uh, just take over the joint. I don't think that's likely to happen. But uh, in the short term, yeah, I think we are on a downward trajectory. As I said, I think the 20s will be a really, really rough decade. But, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways we... we once things, you know, things have to get worse before they get better. People, we need to reach a tipping point and um, popular acceptance in the mainstream that the way we are doing things is just not working anymore. So, yeah, I, I think we are heading 
and there are 10,000 things I could be talking about. I could be talking about the lack of premium premium we're putting on free speech and, and the rise of cancel culture, for example, the lack of a premium we're putting on legal rights as seen in the uh, Christian Porter thing, which has just had the commentary at ride, ride roughshod over the presumption of innocence and due process. Uh, freedom of movement obviously isn't too hot these days. Free, property rights uh, do not seem to be held in as high premium as they otherwise should. But again, that will change, that will self Correct, uh, but in the medium term, yeah, I think I think we're going to be in for a tough few years on the freedom front. So before we get to our final question, I'm going to put you through your paces on your favourite topic, which is, of course, freedom of speech, and see if I can't uh, get some disagreement between the two of us about the limitations of freedom of speech. Mm. Now, I am a free speech absolutist. I don't think you are a free speech yeah, absolutist. Yeah, agreed. No disagreement there. So are you a free speech absolutist? Just uh, yeah, I am. I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the only acceptable limits to freedom of speech in a technical sense would probably be incitement to violence, you know, direct incitement to violence, you know, something that actually results in, uh, you know, harm to somebody else or, or a group of people. But other than that... Perfect. Uh, what I'm going to question about and going to challenge you yeah. on here. Uh, but just to be really clear, when I talk about freedom of speech, we're not talking about publications. We're talking about individual rights to freedom of speech as citizens, okay? Because right. I know the conversation about publications is a different conversation altogether. So as individuals, uh, my point about freedom of speech as being absolute is that if you punish actions correctly, you don't need to punish speech. So even in the context of incitement to violence, we are letting, like, uh, how do I put this? Civilization has started to punish speech more heavily than they punish actions. Yeah. And in that way, we're allowing uh, people to continue committing atrocities and getting away with it. So that is almost being incentivized, particularly in the terrorism sphere. But we punish speech, which continues mm -hmm. to pop up. But if you do the reverse and you punish the actions severely and people are responsible for their actions directly, regardless of who they spoke to, I think you'll find that the trend of increasing violence will actually go the other way. Because at the moment, punishing speech does nothing. But pun not failing to punish actions is causing Harm. So that's my argument that instead of punishing speech, because don't forget, like you can talk at anybody and try and convince anybody of anything, but they know that they are personally going to be punished for their actions. It is much harder to incite somebody to violence. Look, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Ellie, but I actually think you, you haven't sparked much disagreement at all. I agree with you, um, you know, at, at the very least in theory. And as I said, incitement to violence would have to have an extremely high standard. It would have to be clearly and directly related to a subsequent act of violence for it to be legitimate. Again, I still do support it, but it would have to be, you know, narrow enough to not exclude, you know, um, benign speech. And, and you do find, actually, you, you make the point, and you're right, um, that incitement of incitement in you know whatever way is being used increasingly to clamp down on clamp down on speech when in in no way has any link to any harm to anyone the example of course being Zoe Bueller who was arrested in Ballarat the pregnant lady who was arrested in Ballarat and handcuffed in her own kitchen who was done for incitement because she posted a Facebook uh, linked to a protest uh, that might incite people to breach COVID-19 restrictions that's obviously ridiculous um, but also there's this the brouhaha around Donald Trump and the capital riots and so on and the uh, removal of his free speech from social media platforms, and that's a more vexed topic because they're private platforms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But for all intents and purposes, the suppression of his speech because he was inciting people to, um, you know, storm the capital and so on, I think we're seeing that used as a Trojan horse to block out speech that um, the woke governing classes don't like. Oh, we can't have uh, people talking about the fact that COVID, uh, you know, might be treated with hydroxychloroquine because then they might uh, go off and ignore public health restrictions and so on. That is just a, a, a velvet glove and an iron, a, a iron fist and a velvet glove designed to stamp out speech. So as I said, I think incitement to violence is probably the only limit that I can think of to free speech that is legitimate. But again, it has to be a lot more tightly defined than it is now. Oh, forgive me, but I don't trust my government with that kind of power, considering how Maybe they've not. already shown themselves to be abusing it. But let me put it to you this way. In our medieval days, we had punishments that were so severe that people who tried to incite violence were usually left standing alone in an empty field because no one could carry out what they were trying to incite. And mm. so while you might get a couple of idiots who are willing to do it, you get that anyway, regardless of whether or not you yeah. punish incitement violence. You still get that. 
but the overall amount of people who were incited to violence was far smaller when that real punishment on the action was there because you know you just end up with a mad guy going hey do this and and you know you'll get rewarded and they're going nah mate i don't think i want to i don't, I don't want to end up hung drawn and quartered thanks so that would be my argument there particularly in terrorism because we see the we see our governments go on and on and on about um arresting pregnant women for daring to post on facebook that they yeah. want to go to a rally for freedom but then genuine terrorists the government goes out of their way to bring them back into the country and then lets them go so yeah. we're not even dealing with an equal law system. So I would rather they do away with the whole punishing speech and focus on enforcing actual crime. Yeah. Look, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. As I said, you, you give me a lot to think about. And in theory, I actually do agree with you. Um, you know, if some, if some imam uh, during Friday night prayers says, now I want everybody to go out and throw a Molotov cocktail at a synagogue, uh, yeah, it would obviously more, be more important or, uh, you know, to... to prevent the hotheads from going out and actually doing it than punish the poor old imam for, you know, saying something at Friday night prayers. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's one of the interests in which... They might only do it once in their entire lifetime if everyone got arrested. Like, my point would be, you'd only get away with it once, whereas at yeah. the moment we're feeding a continuous culture in which people get away with it and get away with it and get away with it as we see repeated terrorist attacks. They don't go away just because you yeah. try and ban speech. Yeah, no, you, you, you're not wrong. As I said, theoretically, you make, you make a great point. But uh, like you, I'm, I'm a free speech absolutist. The one thing I'm holding out on is genuine incitement. But in terms of other things people invoke to say there are limits to free speech, you know, obviously offence and things like that is completely stupid. But also defamation law, a lot of people on the right, and I used to be one of them, I might add, said, oh, well, look, defamation law is legitimate because it might, you know, ruin your reputation and so on. Um the, the fact of the matter is with defamation law that we were just talking about access to justice issues. That is one of the worst and most egregious access to just, justice issues there is. Defamation law is typically used by rich people to sue other rich people or people who aren't rich to shut them up. Now, every time I go on Sky News, I'm playing, you know, Russian roulette effectively because some litigious so-and-so like Malcolm Turnbull could take issue with something I've said, sue me for millions of dollars, bury me in legal costs forced me to declare bankruptcy and ruin my life. Uh, that is the greatest uh, and most agree well, one of the most egregious uh, limits on free speech and open debate we have, and it's causing a huge chilling effect. And the only recourse I have to that is they'd only get a few cows if they tried to sue me, so it wouldn't be really worth their while. But uh, I will throw you a curveball then because I actually do agree on a particular bit of speech, and that is during a hot war and a, an active conflict, I do agree that there should be limits on sensitive military information being distributed publicly. So yeah. even even Menzies agreed that that was necessary in the Second World War and he had to be coerced into um, allowing that sort of censorship to come into the press. Now, he was adamant that the censorship be short-lived, uh, as minimal as possible, and he didn't put a limitation on opinion in the press during the war like other nations did. And the Liberal Party at the time was trying to increase censorship and he rejected it. But what I find yeah. is interesting is that he then led the charge to uh, censor communism and to remove the Communist Party. So how, to borrow a phrase from you, how do you square that circle? Well, you square the circle by saying it's a classic example of mission creep. And once government does something in relation to exercise, flexes its muscle in relation to one area, then it quickly uh, moves on to another, as we saw with Menzies trying to ban the Communist Party. So... Uh, and I guess the point about military secrets, though, relates a lot to Assange stuff and should we punish people for hacking into government servers and stealing documents? I actually tend to think we do because as much as I think that government should be completely transparent and in 99% of cases that what is extracted will be information that we have a right to know and the government is keeping from us, I do see a need to keep some things secret on a national security basis because fundamentally we don't... It's not. Australians learning these things that's a problem. It is our enemies. It is the, the Chinese or, you know, the Russians or whoever else. It is people that could use those secrets against us. So there is a need for some government information to be kept a secret, but uh, that has a limit. And, for example, you saw Annika Smithhurst have her house raided and her underwear rifled through. On the basis, she leaked a story about a terrible plan to have um, our surveillance agencies actually spy on Australian citizens as opposed to foreign citizens and other countries. Uh, now, that, that raid happened not because she'd endangered national security, but because she'd embarrassed the government. So, again, we, we need to 
there is a need for some national national security secrets just as a matter of the necessity of defending our country. But just like incitement to violence, it should be extremely narrow and it should be limited to cases of genuine uh, genuine safety, which, you know, obviously, I guess, is a very vexed thing to, to define as we find. Well, I believe that's why in countries like Australia, we entitle the government to their secrets, but only for a certain period of time, at which point yeah. they have to declassify their secrets. So they're only... They're only temporary secrets, but uh, more and more we're finding that these secrets are never being released or that the, the, uh, the time that it's being pushed out. Not that I think we have many secrets from China, which is the biggest problem that we have right now, considering <laughs> some members might actually be sitting in our cabinet or in our political system. So well, there's much of a much about whether we protect our secrets or not in the modern age of, of digital everything. Uh, how valid that even is anymore. I was more referring to military operations, which are not part of the public forum, and therefore yeah. they're not conceptual ideas. They are active uh, missions that are going on. But uh, do you want to challenge me on anything, by the way? Because you, no, so you, you're free to challenge me. No, no, we we are we are in lockstep. I'll tell you. You know, um, but this this is the point I'm making. You know, you sort of I, I think um, identify more, identify more as a a conservative, and as you said, I'm more on the libertarian side, but I guess it highlights that really the differences between conservatives and libertarians are, are very, you know, minimal in, in any in a practical sense these days. It tends to be arguments over things like, you know, drugs and porn and stuff like that. But uh, in the main, yeah, look, this is the thing. We, we need to uh, let our, our similarities speak for themselves and realize we all have a lot more in common with each other than the woke socialist masses that are coming from us across the hill. Well, this is, of course, because on the real political spectrum, not the one that uh, has been taught by annoyed communists during uh, during the socialist Marxist civil war in Europe, the actual political spectrum runs from uh, collectivism and authoritarianism on one side, which is basically big government, to small government and complete anarchy on the other. And so if you are a conservative in the English liberty sense, you are for small government, you are edging towards anarchy, and you are by definition a libertarian, which is why yeah. conservatives are actually on the side of libertarian, strictly speaking, which is often forgotten by those who uh, believe that Nazis are right-wing despite the fact that they're <laughs> part of the socialist National collective. socialism is still socialism, kids. I wrote a whole article explaining how ridiculous the concept is that a Nazi is far-right given that they're all for the collectivist unit and complete government control of their systems. They're hardly on the right. Um, but you made a good point that we, the libertarians and conservatives, generally speaking, are quite close to the same political uh, narrative, except people like Matt Keane, who I think might be in the wrong party. Is he a conservative or a libertarian? <laughs> I think he might be a green. I don't think he's actually on the right-hand side of politics. Let, let, let me tell you something. People like Matt Keane, they're a dime a dozen in the Liberal Party, and these are people, and I, I, I know what the problem with these people is. They um, are typically, you know, born into some sort of affluent family. I don't know if Matt Keane necessarily is, but typically, you know, they're born into some sort of, uh, you know, uh, affluent family in the North Shore or uh, the eastern suburbs of Melbourne or something, and they develop a vague interest in politics and public policy, but they couldn't possibly join the Labor Party because that would, be, you know, uh, betray bad breeding. So they end up drawing the Liberal Party and try to turn the Liberal Party into the left wing of the Labor Party. And uh, typically too often they bloody well succeed and end up uh, being the state environment minister. So uh, that is where the Matt Keynes of the world come from. But to call Matt Keane a conservative or libertarian in any uh, real sense is just a complete lie. I, I know you come from Victoria, so I'll be very brief on this, but there's been a strange trend on the North Shore, which is where I was born. I was born on the North Shore of Sydney. I went to school there in a private school with all these people who usually end up in politics. And they have gone from being conservatives and working class and middle class kids to hard left because all the school institutions bred them to believe that this was a virtuous thing to do and yep. that their image is more important than anything else. They've got too rich. much money to worry about the repercussions of their policy and so they've all gone virtuous screwed over the middle class and the working class who are actually sitting beneath them in the you know ec economy and they've all gone into politics as north shore conservatives but they don't share any of the politics of the north shore north shore conservative that's why you're seeing that 
Yeah, absolutely. That, that's what happens. I will say this. It's not that bad when it comes to people who've been through the university system and, and the professional class necessarily. I, I mean, the, the, what, I, what I always say is that among knowledge workers and office workers and people with university degrees, there are a lot of shy Tories. These are people who work at places, you know, like Minter Ellison was just on the news because its uh, CEO idiotically sent out an email uh, second-guessing notions of, you know, natural justice and procedural fairness and so on. Um, they, they, they are as irritated by this stuff as you and I are because they sit in meetings with HR people and hear about this crap all damn day. And I, as I walk up, you know, Collins Street, Melbourne, where a lot of these people work, I get stopped in the street. I say, oh, mate, I love what you have to say. I love the podcast. Love uh, you on Sky News. But I just can't say anything at work because such and such and such. So the shy, don't underestimate the shy Tory effect, particularly among, uh, you know, more affluent professional sort of people. And frankly, those are the people we need. As as great as the battlers are and the, the um, you know, mainstream Australians who live in the regions and in the suburbs, uh, you know, turning this around will require a broad coalition of people from across society, not least of all people in actual positions of power and influence to finally say, you know what the hell with you? The emperor has no clothes. Let's forget about this crap. It's not doing us any good. Well, as we finish, let me give you some hope. Having worked in retail for a, a large sample size of kids who are working in the industry who are not affluent, who are having to work from the bottom upwards. They are increasingly toward the conservative style of politics because as soon yep. as they become a manager or they've got to work at the thing, they can see how damaging the left's policies are and it, it impacts their take-home dollar every time. And so Correct. there is some hope that it's changing. Uh, and now There's we will come to our final question, which we always ask on Curtain Call. If you could have dinner with anybody, living or dead, who would it be and, more importantly, why? So I, I thought long and hard about this. I had a few options. I had uh, Charles Bukowski, my literary and personal idol, Hunter S. Thompson, you know, one of the greatest writers ever, um, Anthony Bourdain, the coolest man to ever have lived. But I settled actually on Elon Musk, I have to say. And um, I've gone up and down with Elon Musk over the years. I've had some not so very nice things to say about him, for example, when he flogged a billion-dollar battery to South Australia that goes for about 17 minutes and when he had that business with the Thai people, the Thai guy who rescued all those kids in the uh, the the, uh, the the caves and so on. But Elon Musk lately, I, I just talked about you know affluent, better off people who need to you know join in the movement to save us. He uh, has opposed the you know was is very vocally against the shutdown in California. Has uh, you know is a bit of a renegade and a bit of a bad boy. You know hates convention and is doing his own thing. He's obviously got a you know quite a few interesting ideas for genuine innovation and genuine scientific advancement, not the crap that governments come up with, but genuine, you know, um, moving forward in in our quest for for scientific uh, truth. But also what he's done for Bitcoin, he, he sees the writing on the wall with fiat currency. And uh, we need people like Elon Musk to get behind uh, decentralized currency. So because once, once, Alexandra, once we decouple government and the supply of money then that bring that ch completely changes the ball game in terms of the uh the the, the thumb under which uh, we are kept by our governing elite so elon musk is 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 you know he might just be the hero we need right now and he'd be a fascinating guy to have a beer with and dinner well interestingly i would actually pick nikola tesla the the person after which his company is named so that's a, a very interesting oh. choice for you <laughs> Well, thank you for joining us on Curtain Call today. It has been wonderful to have you along and best of luck with your new ventures. Yes, I, uh, my pleasure, Ellie. I, I look forward to having you again on Counterculture on Spectator Australia TV. Just look up Spectator Australia TV on YouTube and have a watch. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.